So I confess, I am an institutionalist. I deeply value gathered people committed to an idea. I'm a joiner. I like belonging. Facebook has made joining so easy. I belong to groups devoted to reading and haiku and cooking. And there's a group for UU ministers that are in preliminary fellowship. And there's even, since I married into this Catholic family, a Facebook page for this far-flung Peralt family. So a collection of people can accomplish astounding things. No doubt, many of you feel the same way. While others of you fall along the individualist end of the spectrum. And I appreciate you introverts, despite having to work up the courage to walk in these doors on Sunday because it rubs against your non-joining nature, you do it anyway. We joiners are grateful for company and fellow travelers. Despite the damning data, the terrible trends, the perilous prophecies, I don't believe churches as institutions are doomed. They are changing. They must change. But they're not dying and going away forever. And I'm not just saying this for job security (laughs) or because I am standing in the most beautiful sanctuary amongst the most compassionate and active people. I'm saying this because humans have always, always found ways to gather and celebrate what is most wonderful in the world and sort out how to change what is most terrible. Of course, not all institutions and not all religions and not all churches are equal or effective or even kind. Over time, these more destructive and painful groups should and have faded away. Good riddance to the Christianity of the Crusades, to civil and religious authorities burning someone at the stake, to American slavery, to Jim Crow. But regrettably, like whack-a-mole, another inhumane system crops up to take their place. So new sinister institutions are born with improved ways to be horrible. Most of you may have heard an example of current-day religious terrorism is Flip Benham's anti-abortion group, Operation Save America. They interrupted worship last Sunday at First Unitarian in New Orleans. The sanctuary was silent as the congregation prayed for a young mother of two who had just lost her battle to cancer the death of a civil rights lawyer 
who had recently um, had been a longtime member of the church, and for peace in Gaza. So they were in that space of reflection, and that's when the shouting started. Undercover protesters stood up, opened their shirts to reveal their Operation Save America shirts, and screamed for the congregation to repent. They insisted on trying to present the truth of the gospel in this synagogue of Satan. Once worshipers realized what was going on, they raised their voices in song, breaking into a song that's in our hymnal, Circle Round for Freedom. Now, a key piece to last Sunday's story that I want you to remember and to hold on to is that it was the youth who led the singing. They were the ones who got the congregation to circle up, forming a ring around the sanctuary and singing and singing and singing. Their minister, Deanna Vandiver, said, we sang until it became clear who was a member of the community and who was there to destroy it. And once they sorted that out, all were notified they were welcome to remain in worship if they could do it respectfully. If not, they were invited out the front door to protest outside. So like the Crusades, Operation Save America's aggressive tactics are a contemporary form of religious bullying and terrorism. And while we no longer burn people in the town square, we still use the electric chair and a regrettable injectable death cocktail in government-sanctioned deaths. We have formal legal systems that catch, criminalize, and lock away a disproportionate number of people of color and of refugees that many call the new Jim Crow. We condone a form of capitalism, unsustainable wages, and phony loans that effectively keep many people in impoverished slavery. May these contemporary destructive institutions soon fall away. And our work is discerning which institutions are worth maintaining and which ones should die off or even with our help be killed off. The choices may seem obvious from the outside, but when you're in the middle of an institution, when you're part of a system, and it's maybe your life's work, or it's given your life meaning and a sense of belonging, that institution becomes the water you swim in. And it can be difficult to accept a need for change or demise. in case you're feeling a bit anxious, wondering if I've been out of the pulpit too long, and away so that I'm suggesting Hope Church is an institution past its prime or usefulness, just the opposite. I return refreshed, energized, and certain this church sits 
far into the category of institutions worthy of preserving. Although, change is inevitable. And we're going to have to constantly sort through the opposing dynamics of sustaining while progressing. And one essential role of any religious institution is holding on to history, maintaining traditions, passing down stories. And a common way mainline religions do this is by turning to the same authority. God, the word of God. In Christianity, the word of God is the Bible. In Judaism, the Torah. In Islam, the Quran. And in our own church, it's complicated. (laughs) We'll come back to that. Yesterday, every Jewish synagogue and temple around the world heard chapter 33 of Numbers, It's the same text read aloud, studied, and taught Saturday, a year ago, 10 years ago, and 2,000 years ago. Institutional history is strengthened by returning to this same text. And this repetitive reading may sound monotonous to you, but in reality, with each passing year, Everyone is a different person in a different place in their life. So the words and stories speak in new ways. I know of an author who took out her beloved, battered, crinkled, dog-haired copy of Charlotte's Web and reread it to see if it still spoke to her and to see what it was that captivated her so much that as a child she read it over and over and over again, she'd get to the end and immediately turn back to the first page and start over. She said, now she sees it as a Buddhist tale, a lesson of mindfulness. It's about being truly content, whatever you are, and wherever you are. It's a story of kindness and compassion. At the very end of the book, after his dear friend Charlotte has died, Wilbur the pig observes, life in the barn was very good. Night and day, winter and summer, Spring and fall, dull days and bright days. It was the best place to be, thought Wilbur, this delicious cellar with the garrulous geese, the changing of the seasons, the, heart, the heat of the sun, the passage of the swallows, the nearness of the rats, the sameness of the sheep, the love of spiders, the smell of manure, and the glory of everything. The glory of everything. 
The text the Jews are revisiting this week covers details of their exodus out of slavery. Part of the chapter reads just like Google Maps. They journeyed from Elim, camped by the Red Sea. They journeyed from the Red Sea and camped by the Desert of Sin. They journeyed from the Desert of Sin and camped at Dovka. Some years, I imagine this reading could lull you to sleep. Other years, say you just experienced a serious illness in the family and wandered through the medical system where each step, decision, tiny bit of information, progress, setbacks become seared into your brain. The whole journey is critical and unforgettable in your heart. And the recounting of minute details of wandering through that desert into freedom may touch your soul like a retelling of the milestones of the recovery of your loved one. The ambulance took Dad to St. Francis about midnight, and it was starting to snow. We were in the ER for about nine hours. As they stabilized him next, they put him in intensive care cardiac unit. We weren't sure at this point if they could put in stents or if he required a full-on open-heart surgery. Dr. Jamal said Dad was young enough and healthy enough that surgery could give him years of active life. The waiting during surgery was agonizing. Friends brought us baskets of food and water to sustain us. He was moved to surgery recovery, then months of rehab, and has been home since April. He just went for his first very slow but very real jog around the neighborhood. The glory of everything. In Christianity, you can't read the whole Bible each year. It's too long. So some denominations use a lectionary, a three-year cycle of readings. So around the world, Christians are hearing readings from Genesis and Matthew today. And even some Unitarian Universalist churches use this lectionary. King's Chapel in Boston, First Unitarian in Dallas. They've been hearing the Bible and hearing it unpacked from a UU perspective. Others, like Hope prefer the uncommon lectionary. We have cracked wide open what we can read in this pulpit. Philosophy, science, history, essays, poetry. Today, a YouTube video or two, which we'll come back to in a minute. When our Unitarian Universalist ancestors ceased viewing the Bible as the literal word of God more than a 100 years ago, We turn to the whole world of ideas across the span of human time. We are receptive to the wisdom from diverse religious traditions. One early hero of mine and in our movement is the universalist Charles Patton, who was charged to carry universalism beyond Christianity. This was post-World War II, 
the day and age of the UN and hopes for universal peace and understanding. Patton set up the Charles Street Meeting House in Boston by painting the whole sanctuary to look like the cosmos. And on the chancel were two huge bookcases, what they considered sacred. And it was filled with sacred texts from around the world, different religions, and also science books, literature, and art. And Patton wrote hymns and collected readings aiming for a unitive, naturalistic, mystical, humanistic world religion. The glory of everything. So our uncommon lectionary respects the wisdom that comes from all ages. We do have favorites. You could name some. We have a canon of sorts. You will inevitably hear Mary Oliver, David White, Rumi. You'll hear their poetry. You will no doubt hear Emerson Emerson and Thoreau, Martin Luther King Jr., Florence Nightingale, who was Unitarian, Norbert Chopik, who was a Unitarian martyr, from World War II, and Francis David, who is a 16th century leader of religious tolerance. Uh, If you're new to our church, or even if you've been here forever, turn to the back of our hymnal and look at the incredible array of authors and ideas in the reading section. No other hymnal is like it. We believe that Wisdom can be found almost anywhere and that revelation is unfolding, not handed down once upon a time, sealed forever. While there's something to be said about having a core set of texts, on the other hand, relying on a single text can reinforce bad habits and systems. Embedding violence and sexism and classism, racism, gender bias. It can stifle innovation, new ideas, new vocabulary. We have familiar words that we return to over and over again that describe what we're up to as a church. And I know that you could pick them out. Community. Service, reason, social justice, covenant, love, multicultural. But millions of people on the internet would better understand what Hope Church does if we use some new vocabulary. One particular online community calls itself nerd fighters. And they are committed to decreasing world suck. He used that. (laughs) And seeking and supporting awesomeness. Does anyone here know what I'm talking about? Okay, let me come at this a different way. Many of the ancient sacred texts began as wisdom handed down in oral form, got told over and over again, then finally got 
written down and edited, printed, typed, and now is all over the internet. And in today's worship, YouTube to be specific, is where we allow our wide open, cracked open canon of wisdom. And it belongs in this church. The glory of everything. The background of nerd fighting, or as the community refers to itself, nerd fighteria, started with those two brothers, Mark and Hank Green, and they agreed in 2007 to communicate with each other exclusively by vlog for one whole year. They each filmed a short letter and sent it to the other each once a week over the internet on a YouTube channel they set up. And they called the channel Brotherhood 2.0. They made the videos public. And the first installment had 10,000 people watching. Over time, their viewership, mostly under 30, has grown astronomically. The experiment was so successful that they've, they've kept going. And they now have this massive online community built on their ideas, their humor, their intelligence, and their wisdom. As of last uh, Thursday when I checked, they had over 2 million subscribers to their YouTube channel and have over 1,000 videos on the channel that have all been watched thousands of times. Today we watched two of the vlogs, and I know that Adult RE watched several, at least one on health care last year. And as with many groups, they've developed their own lingo, and one purpose of the slang is to create a community who's in, who's out. And another purpose is to create shorthand, to have a deeper conversation more quickly. So I won't go into the whole story of why nerdfighter became the word. It grew out of a joke a visual misunderstanding. But the word has evolved to mean anyone committed to making the world a better place, fighting against world suck, or opposing all things in the world that are terrible. Yeah, world suck is a bit of an earthy phrase, yet part of its appeal. The nerd-fighting community or nerd-fighteria touches a deep current of vitality and love and angst and loneliness and hope that runs through the young. One nerd fighter describes it as a subculture, a place where any young person who feels like an outsider, straight, smart, trans, gay, biracial, adopted, can belong. Here's the critical part. It's not just about belonging, but being part of a creative, light-on-its-feet group that is interested in getting together and doing awesome things. Okay, so the language can sound lightweight to anyone over 30, but so did make peace, not war. Keep on trucking. Hang in there, baby from the 60s. And for encouragement, nerd fighters tell each other, don't forget to be awesome. DBFTA, 
Some of the awesome things nerd fighters are actually doing are concrete, raising money for medical research, creating online courses, reinventing classic literature, and allowing visual artists to collaborate in new ways. Their community is actually one of the top donors in funding national and international microloans. To me, what they're doing sounds an awful lot like dwelling together in peace and seeking the truth in love and helping one another. Our covenant is about decreasing world stock and creating awesomeness, the glory of everything. And along those same lines, former and current Hope members are starting a new congregation in town this fall, the Tulsa Sunday Assembly. Like nerd fighters, this expanding network is gathering those who want to live better, help often, wonder more. That's their motto. And it too sounds like a wonderful version of our covenant of seeking the truth and love and helping one another. Calling themselves a godless congregation or atheist church, Sunday Assembly started as a lark. Two British performers, two comedians, began a godless church in London back in January of 2013. But their ideas resonate deeply with many, giving those who share a common vocabulary and worldview a place to join in. The wisdom of nerd fighters and the Sunday assembly runs parallel to our own. And they call us to step outside our usual boundaries and categories. They point to how joining no longer means only coming to church and signing a membership book. It means reaching out online, in meetup groups. We must not fear nor ignore these new possibilities and horizons. And the millions who are connected in unseen but wonderful ways. At the same time, we have a mature wisdom rooted in history. From centuries of trial and error, we know ideas, enthusiasm, and good intentions aren't enough. The challenging work of being a community and staying in relationship with each other keeping our promises to each other, that's the work when differences and difficulties arise. I expect us to be creatively hospitable, yet set clear limits if protesters interrupt our services. We have the skills and experience to decrease world suck And not just online, but face-to-face across generations over and over again. And we will gladly make room for the atheist, as well as the theist, the Unitarian and the Universalist, the gay, the straight, the transgendered, the young, the old, the black, the brown, all the colors in between. 
That's my wish for this congregation. That we don't forget we are awesome and don't forget to be awesome. DBTFA, may it be so.